Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy Fourth of July week. Happy uh, Women's World Cup team is going to the final on Sunday. Uh, a lot of happy to go around uh, over the last couple hours. Quite a bit, yeah. We uh, we looked kind of iffy at times in the second half of the game against England, just like we did in the second half against France. Nonetheless, uh, U.S. women's team pulls through, and they'll be in the final against a team to be determined as of this recording anyway. Um, great stuff in, in any case by the women's team. And for those who didn't read um, Sue Bird's piece in the uh, Players' Tribune, you should definitely go check that out, although I'm sure... If you're a certain political stripe, maybe you don't. But whatever, I would recommend reading it. Yeah, it's been fun to follow. It's always nice to have like some kind of uh, international competition or something that we don't usually get uh, to take us through the long summer months. So um, it's been a joy to watch them. Hopefully we take it all home on Sunday and then move on to, I guess, TBT would be the next uh, bit of intrigue this summer outside of you know baseball, which is over. The baseball season ended a while ago, so... <laughs> As, as as Dan and I mentioned on episode, uh, I don't know which episode the number would be, I guess, an episode in early April, uh, there were only three ways this Mets season would go. Um, I think it went with option two of we're going to look like trash and then this team's going to find a way to win like 82 games. Yeah, the, I'm, I'm, I can't wait for the big second half uh, behind a bullpen that only pitches to like a five ERA instead of an 80 ERA um, <laughs> in which... Pete Alonso hit 60 home runs and Jeff McNeil bats 350 and we still somehow managed to only go 500. It sounds like Mets baseball. Love it so much. So, so good. At least one of my teams did something this week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we can mention that briefly, I guess not because Syracuse fans care just because the, the Knicks Nets banter has long been a staple of this podcast. Um, Dan's team managed to do the thing that my team was supposed to do. And we're just going to continue being bad and stupid. And the Nets are going to be like fairly watchable this year and very watchable next year. And actually showed people that while they did a good job in terms of building a team through youth and some savvy signings, um, they also managed to parlay that into the thing that the Knicks keep trying to do, which is, you know, those big name signings and not just one, but two of them, um, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving heading in, uh, DeAndre Jordan also getting more money than he should definitely deserve at this point in his career. But if that's the, if that's the cost of doing business, that's the cost of doing business. Yeah. Somehow they're only losing basically from a, a playoff roster. You're losing D'Angelo Russell and Shabazz Napier and maybe Jared Dudley. I'll see what happens with him. You're gaining, uh, the, the specter of Kevin Durant for a year, Kyrie Irving, uh, DeAndre Jordan, who will be a, at least a serviceable backup to Jared Allen, uh, Garrett Temple's on the team now, and the Nets are somehow not over the luxury tax. And, um, yeah, maintain pretty much all of the rotation beyond those two players. So uh, it's a good time. Uh, we'll see how it works. Obviously, it's not obvious. Obviously, Durant is coming back from a devastating injury. Um, but on paper, uh, the Nets made one of the bigger free agency splashes in recent NBA memory and had one of the craziest turnarounds in three years uh, in NBA history. So we'll see. Uh, it's it's a good time to be a Brooklyn Nets fan for the 15,000 of us that exist. Meanwhile, the New York Knickerbockers enter year 20 of a rebuild. 
and <laughs> it's not going to get any better as we decided to unload our entire, um, you know, two max lots worth of room on uh, corpses and Julius Randall. So super excited for another two years of Knicks basketball before we swing and miss on Giannis and a couple other guys. The Knicks should hang a banner if Melo goes to the Lakers and wins a title. I'll, I, I would hang a banner. I think we it's might. Like I made the Billy Joel ones, just so it's not like super obvious. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, the Staples Center has the Taylor Swift banner, which is among the most embarrassing things that any, uh, any pro sports venue has ever done. But I did yeah, not I think know Billy that. Joel. That's, that's rough. It's pretty bad. She had like five straight sellouts at the Staples Center and like right next to like uh, Kareem's jersey or some shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Taylor Swift five straight sellouts and, and, and I'll troll the hell out of every LA fan I know. They should uh, force the Clippers to, uh, to, to claim that one. I think they actually cover it up because the Clippers started doing that thing where they like hang the banners um, along like the top rafters. So that you can't see all the Lakers shit during their games. Which took them long enough. They didn't do it until like Doc showed up, which so they spent a lot of time with just Lakers banners hanging everywhere in a venue that had like no clippers, anything. I do enjoy like I it, obviously I'm not in LA, so I don't get to experience all of it, but uh, there is something to be said for the fact that we have two franchises share a stadium when they openly hate each other, or at least one side openly hates the other, uh, versus like Obviously, the Giants and Jets do, but like they play every like eight years, and they're you know any contempt is just bred on like sports radio. But like Lakers and Clippers really don't like each other, and they have been such different franchises for the entirety of their existences. And the fact that they have shared a building for so long is pretty funny. Yeah, I don't really like. Admittedly, a lot of it, like some of it's sports radio, some of it. To the to the Mets Yankees vibe, because you have one franchise that's obviously just like so dominant over the other in terms of the consciousness of fans, in terms of the success they've had, in terms of the Hall of Famers, in terms of history, all that their history in the region. Uh, at, at the same time, I do think that like at least the Mets have some claim. Like like when the Mets are good, no, they're not going to take over things that we Yan- the Yankees do, but the Mets do take over New York in a certain way. Um, and especially did in the 80s uh, when the Yankees were largely dead and buried. But here, like even when the Clippers were good and the Lakers have sucked, the Lakers were still taking the headlines. So it's, it, it, it's much, much more stark um, here in that Lakers-Clippers divide, even that, you know, even versus like a, a Mets-Yankees divide or, or, or a White Sox-Cubs divide. Where again, and I guess, I guess another city would be that that would be even closer, really, than the Mets Yankees divide is the White Sox Cubs, where um, no one even acknowledges the White Sox won a World Series and like broke their own like near hundred year curse, um, like years before the Cubs did it, and like again doesn't even register for anybody. Yeah, it, it is. It is funny how these how the, like the dual sport things shake out because they do have like all these very like the Cubs White Sox won. I mean, not that I'm an expert on Chicago, but like, you really don't see that much White Sox stuff around just from being there a couple weeks ago. Mets, Yankees, if, like, the Mets are competitive, you probably see more Mets stuff than the Yankees stuff, at least in the city. It's the surrounding areas that are very Yankees-heavy. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's always fun uh, fun to have these these various relationships um, with the, like, inner-city rivalries, and and hopefully the Nets will start to take time to make some end runs. I don't think the Nets are going to, like, start taking away Knicks fans. I think 
if Knicks fans are going to like abandon the team, they're just going to kind of not care. But there are plenty of like non-NBA fans who can be dragged into the sport as a whole and then choose the Nets as like their option given what's gone on. Um, and the Nets kind of went to Brooklyn as like a pseudo, uh, just based on what they had when they got there. They were like almost like a an expansion team because like the New Jersey fan base wasn't huge either. And like some of it stuck around, but it's not like they had this whole established thing that just disappeared and like moved halfway across the country. So um, I, I think it's uh, some people have like made fun of the Nets. They're like, yeah, we all know what the Nets fan base is. Like, it's not a huge thing. It's growing steadily if slowly. Um, yeah. We're going to have bandwagoners. Like what are you going to do about it? It, it? it is what it is. Yeah. And I mean, you're going to see like the, the Clippers Lakers thing wasn't flipped long enough to, to have a huge, huge impact, especially because the Lakers got out of that time period with LeBron on the roster. But uh, I, I think in terms of, you know, the, this Knicks-Nets thing, like, you're pretty much looking at, like, one, one pretty good Knicks team in the last, you know, 20 years. Like, that's going to have an immediate impact, you know, in the immediate term and, and down the road where, you know, kids that are becoming NBA fans or fans that are being, you know, brought into the NBA fold, like the Knicks aren't even an option for them in New York and, and, and they won't be just because of how miserable the franchise has been. I don't want to really go any further on this just because I feel like people want to get to the Syracuse content. But uh, nonetheless, like this is this is a pretty miserable state of affairs for the franchise. They have a lot of fixing to do. Um, I'll be rooting for them, unfortunately. Um, I'll also be rooting for the Jazz, who will probably win the NBA Finals this coming year. So when they do it, you can reference this episode as the person who called it. It would be pretty appropriate if your like randomly adopted second team won the title before <laughs> your high school team. And also, yes, this is what happens when you take away our time limit. We we spent however right back long. at it. Yep, we're just we're back we're back in the in the saddle of uh, just directionless conversation about stuff that we you know may have thought we would bring up but didn't even discuss beforehand. So. Uh, Congratulations. I hope everyone used their skip buttons appropriately. Indeed. Um, but to Syracuse things, a couple things we wanted to talk about. Number one, uh, this became a talking point more than I thought it would be. Uh, I talked about it in the newsletter this week, talked about it on the blog today, which is Tuesday. Uh, Kip Wellman decided to uh, head elsewhere after being director of basketball operations since t- t- uh, 2013. He, uh, he was most notable for kind of fixing Syracuse's non-conference schedule situation. It was overblown how bad the non-conference schedule situation was for a while at the same time. Like, there were some years in there where SU really just scheduled a bunch of, like, upstate scabs and, like, and then figured the Big East would cover up the rest. Um, Kip managed to, you know, kind of stop those narratives or at least stop those narratives in actual practice uh, by finding, you know, Really good, like really good mid majors. Uh, you know your Buffaloes, your your St. Bonaventures, Iona's teams like that. Um, scheduling them, finding usually a marquee, uh, you know, power conference game away from you know the, the typical ACC Big Ten challenge game. Like he just he he constructed really good schedules and ones that were aesthetically appealing. So when we had Syracuse teams that were losing thirteen games, fourteen games in the regular season. Um, they weren't penalized to the point that maybe everyone thought they would be just because they had strong non-conference uh, strength of schedule paired with a, a strong ACC strength of schedule. So uh, I'll, I'll give Kip direct uh, kind of credit for getting Syracuse to the tournament in 2016 and 2018. 
as well as getting SU an eight seed uh, this past season. But uh, he's gone. Uh, we'll see if the uh, if the, the approach uh, mirrors what we've seen so far. I know this year, I don't know how much he was or wasn't involved in the schedule construction. It did seem like his departure was a bit sudden. Um, I know you and I have mentioned, I know I mentioned on the blog, this year's schedule does seem at least a little bit lighter uh, than we've seen in the past with not a lot of real anchors in the non-conference schedule anyway. Yeah, it's hard to know how much involvement he had if he, I assume he knew he was leaving, you know, a couple of weeks ago at the worst. Um, but uh, it, I wonder if like Bayheim has asked for a slightly easier schedule um, just based on how young this team is going to be. Um, but yeah, he deserves a lot of credit. Uh, there were years, um, especially those first couple years before I got to SU where we missed the tournament. Uh, and the schedule was at least in part to blame. Um, and you can make the argument that he kind of helped schedule us into some tournaments uh, in recent years with um, how effectively he gained uh, the RPI and the other metrics that are looked at. So uh, it's, you know, you definitely can't uh, understate it. Uh, and hopefully, um, is it Peter Torosaniti who's taking over? Is that official? Yeah, he uh, he's in, he was at Binghamton, I believe, the last few years. Yep, so hopefully he he's, uh, you know, has some of the same skills and is picked up on 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 how this all works and um, you know I'm sure Bayheim has plenty of input as well. Uh, also but, means we're probably facing the Bearcats, <laughs> like very. Oh. Yeah, I feel like we haven't fa- faced them in a couple of years, but they definitely were on the schedule at least you know once in a while for uh, you know over the last couple of years. But we we seem to have that like rotation of non Colgate Pornell, you know, because they're always on the schedule. But beyond them, we have this like weird rotation of upstate teams and, and Binghamton. I wouldn't be surprised if we, we got them on. Um, I haven't faced them since 2013. Yeah. Okay. I knew, I knew we had faced them at least like since I've been a fan. Recent-ish. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. 2013 was the last time we faced them. One ninety three to 65. Uh, they are yeah. in the, uh, the famed five and zero or better club uh, that, that, that I made up a while back um, to describe any team that we've beaten five or more times. Um, without them beating us at all. Uh, Wake Forest was the chairman of that board for quite some time. Um, yeah, until they, they pulled off a victory like two years now. ago. I think it's BYU. That's interesting. Interesting we face them that often. Well, BYU's 5-0. and This is going to make for... Well, it's a, it's a current team. Oh, Albany, I think, is, is the clubhouse leader now among current D1 teams. Albany were 8-0 against them. Um, we're also 7-0 and against the alumni team. We are 8-0 against Alfred University. Uh, these, these are not <laughs> things that I counted um, among the results here. Uh, yeah, we'll think, I think, I think Alfred's a NAIA school now. Yeah, Hobart's on here, but they're not D1 in basketball. Yeah, they're, they're, there's a handful of them, the, but I, I'm pretty sure Albany is now the, uh, now the clubhouse leader. At at a sterling zero and eight against Syracuse, and like I said, there's a bunch of other ones. I'm sure. I'm sure if we weren't live right now, I, I would dig through um, TCU's X on that list as well. Oddly enough, we faced them five times. Five times we are five and zero. Oh. Hmm. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully they all remain on this uh, incredible list of distinction. Yeah, I mean, Wake Forest advocated their role, so. so Good, good luck, Great Danes, filling those, those, those large shoes, those very large plush shoes of the Demon Deacon. 
in other Syracuse news, uh, the ACC football kickoff, uh, a.k.a. Media Days, uh, representatives were announced today. Uh, Syracuse it will bring down, along with Dino Babers, uh, Tommy DeVito, Kendall Coleman, uh, kind of represent the offense and defense. I think those are two pretty good picks. Obviously, it doesn't really matter who we pick. Um, notably, this is like the first time we've had new two new faces there since 2015. Um, Zaire Franklin famously went to three straight and was complaining about it by the third year. Uh, Derek Dungy went to two straight. Uh, so now we get the, the the full reset here with DeVito, who should be the face of the team going forward. Um, and then Kendall Coleman, who's been one of the you know key parts of the the team and, and a senior who started you know for the last three years and, and really earned a place here. So glad to see both of them there. Uh, Dan, I'm sure you don't really have any hard-hitting analysis here, but if, any other thoughts, feel free. No, I, I think, if anything, uh, you could say it's it's a little, not surprising, um, just a little different how Syracuse has so openly just thrust Tommy DeVito into the spotlight. He was obviously a part of the uniform rollout. He was part of, you know, a couple other things, a lot of graphics, and, and it makes sense him being the starting quarterback, but he is entering his first year as a starter, and uh, Syracuse has not been shy about promoting him to the country, which uh, may look, you know, like a wise decision in a couple weeks uh, when we get going if he plays as well as he did uh, in spots last year. Um, but to see him represent the full team, I'd say it's a good sign because I don't think Babers would choose him lightly. Um, but it's clear that he, you know, kind of need to step up as a quarterback, as a leader of the team, and he's getting a, a pretty big honor here alongside Kendall Coleman, who's a, a pretty logical uh, inclusion. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I think Dino gets it. Syracuse only has so many shots like this to get national attention on them, to get national attention on their quarterback, to really get hype going around certain players. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with the decision to to increase hype around around those entities. I think in general, like, Dino is, Dino is first and foremost a very good coach, but I think he also understands uh, an aspect of showmanship that I think a lot of other coaches – just might not care about or might not want to embrace or might not get. So I think, yeah, bringing DeVito, having him thrown into the fire, so to speak, in a pretty friendly environment. I mean, you're not going to get tough questions necessarily um, at ACC football kickoff. I, I think this too, like not only forces Tommy to, you know, maybe start embracing a little more of a media role and like, yes, they're college kids, but you know, if you're the starting quarterback of a P5 school, you're probably going to have to answer you know, questions here and there and just getting him more comfortable in that environment, you know, might be part of this too. And also provide some great narratives uh, for national press as well as local press uh, going into the season. I think, you know, interestingly, and I mentioned this in the article that, you know, while SU was willing to bring DeVito, it, it's funny that Clemson did not bring Trevor Lawrence. Uh, Dabo seems like much more of a, uh, you know, seniors only guy, but Definitely interesting that the potential Heisman favorite uh, is not at this event while several other quarterbacks are. Yeah, I, I doubt he wants Trevor asked 800 times if he would like consider sitting out next season if he wins the Heisman this year so he doesn't have to play a junior year or all the other questions, which um, I guess have validity, except that there's no indication that Lawrence would ever do anything like that. Uh, but I imagine that's what he's trying to avoid there. And also, like you said, I think Dabo is very much a little more like by the book, here are the veterans. We're sending these guys out. They've paid their dues versus Syracuse, which is, you know, trying to take advantage of the hype it has entering the season. And part of that is the former four-star quarterback who's looked the part in short, you know, short spots uh, through his first year last year, um, hopefully entering the national spotlight as like, 
you know, potentially one of the three or four best quarterbacks in the ACC behind Lawrence. So just different approaches, but it's not like Clemson really needs much more hype around it. No, I think ESPN is uh, more than taking care of that uh, th- this offseason. And it's it's funny you mentioned the uh, the quarterback rankings too. I, know I have uh, my first, well, the quarterback article for Syracuse, and we'll talk about quarterbacks here in a sec. Quarterback article for Syracuse preview for the blog came out on Monday. Uh, that one touched on just SU situation on Wednesday. So that'll be probably like shortly after this goes up. We'll have our first ACC position preview where we contextualize where Syracuse sits relative to the rest of the conference. Obviously, uh, these have taken on an increasingly more positive tone uh, as, as Dino Baber's tenure is, is worn on. Uh, right now, I had SU. I didn't have SU in the top three. Just, I try not to do like a full thing. I try to do the top three and the bottom three and then say where Syracuse slots in. Uh, SU was not in the top three just because of the depth situation. I have them number five uh, behind Clemson, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Florida State. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people a little angry about the Florida State thing, but realistically, like, while DeVito, I think, is better than both James Blackman and Alex Hornibrook, I think that I'd rather have, like, in terms of a depth situation and a total position, not just one player, I'd rather have the, you know, Blackman-Hornibrook situation than DeVito and then the pretty steep, no offense to the other guys in the roster, but a pretty steep drop-off from from Tommy DeVito, you know, to the next man up. Yeah, no, I think that's very fair. Like depth, if Tavita was to go down, we'd have um, a pretty, you know, we'd have a, a, an issue on our hands. I think uh, Rex Culpepper showed some things to like when he played a bit a couple years ago, but he's, you know, hasn't played in a while. And also, you know, still putting his uh, his cancer diagnosis in, in the past, although it looks like he's back to uh, pretty much 100%. He was active. Um, he's cross-trained some other positions. Does it looks like, you know, it seems like we'd like to get his athletic ability on the field, uh, just however we do it. And then Clayton Welsh, I think, you know, there is some, there, there are some tools there. Six five. He's a he's huge big. dude. He's really big. He's, uh, he's the tallest quarterback. I think we probably had since Charlie Loeb. Um, and, and at two fifty, like, you know, we're coming off of an era with a big quarterback and he's, uh, probably even bigger than, than Dungey. Um, maybe not as uh, quite as like burly. Um, but, there, there's definitely stuff there, and Walsh is impressed enough to like rise up to the second string. So um, you'd like to trust those guys, but th- there, there's a lot of unknown behind DeVito. Um, and then obviously you have David Summers, the freshman, who I think uh, there's a, having watched his tape back when he committed, um, you can really see the comparisons to DeVito. Um, but he's not going to be ready as a true freshman. You hope it doesn't get to that point. So I, I think that's a pretty fair ranking. Yeah, I know we were talking about it like I think a couple of months ago. There were a decent number of commenters who were saying that you know they'd, they'd rather they'd rather our situation than a lot of others and, and and you know really kind of tooting the horn for Devito and everybody else, but like realistically, like if you look at the talent at least out of the box, at least according to the recruiting rankings, like there's there's very I don't think there's another team with as much of a drop off from QB one to the next. And again, that's not to slight the guys, just pointing it out, like. There's no one with that much of a, a, a tenuous kind of grab on on the offense that that's just with one guy. Like last year, we had the benefit of you know having two starting capable QBs. This year, we think we have one in, in Devito. We'll see what he looks like for a full season. And like the only teams that might have questionably like a lesser 
you know, handle on things from a quarterback situation like top to bottom of the depth chart are probably Georgia Tech and Louisville. Um, UNC has, you know, a top 100 guy um, on the roster. Duke has, you know, several like high three-star, like close to four-star, like passers on the roster. Like there's there, – there, it's not to say SU's quarterback situation is dire. It's just to say that it's very much hinging on one guy. And, and, and let's not – just because we had a good year with two capable quarterbacks last year, let's not remember how the other half, which we're still very much part of, lives. Wait, wait, when you're you're living and dying on the on the arm of of, of one passer. Yeah, certainly hasn't been that long uh, since we've been in that spot. Um, hopefully, if Devito lives up to what we think he can, uh, you start to see some more success because then you then you, you know it's easy to point to recruits and say, "Hey, we we inherited Eric Dungey. We did this." Uh, we brought in Tommy DeVito. We did this, and obviously you go farther back. And yet, you know, we had so much success with the staff at Bowling Green and with Jimmy Garoppolo um, going back even farther to the the FCS level. Um, you start to like spin that where where you can pretty reliably get quarterback talent in every year. It's been a little bit a challenge, little bit of a challenge since DeVito, but um, obviously we only have this like one great year under our belts and. Uh, Usually these things get kicked down the road, like you know the impact of a great a great year like that isn't really felt for like a full year after. So, um, you know, I, I'm still pretty overall pretty optimistic. And if Devito hits, then there's no reason why we can't really start to sell that quarterback recruits. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I've definitely been concerned about the quarterback position. I mean, we had really we we could have been quarterbackless for the last two classes. Uh, if not for some late flips of Chance Amy, who ended up transferring out anyway this offseason, and David Summers, who we flipped from Maryland. Um, you know, even uh, Welch was a, you know, Juco walk-on who we gave a scholarship a couple of years ago. Like, there's, for as much as Babers had a lot of success recruiting-wise, then quarterback just hasn't hit. And I don't think that's his fault necessarily. And I think... Um, I think Kirk Martin is, has proved himself to be a pretty good quarterback coach and, and somebody who is trying to open the door to Texas a little bit more. But what we're seeing is because of the longevity of Eric Dungy and because of kind of the haphazardness of that offense at times with him running it, uh, I, I think that that staying power that he seemed to have atop that depth chart scared off maybe some more elite recruits who, you know, I mean, look at all these guys. Look how many transfers there are. Like guys want to play right away. Uh, as much as possible. So like that would theoretically be to our advantage, but when you had a guy like Dungeon and Trench, not so much. Uh, DeVito, like we've said before, is going to come in and run an offense that looks a lot more like what Babers really would prefer to run. He's going to be a traditional pocket passer, maybe moves around a little bit, but realistically he's going to be a drop back guy. Like I think being able to show the results of that uh, over the course of a full season. Yeah, that should be able to help us out. Unfortunately, though, we've struck out on everybody for a third straight class. <laughs> and, and for the most part, um, SU might go without one of its top targets, a quarterback for 2020 as well. Uh, that doesn't necessarily help us out a ton, but maybe for 2021, once we start moving, you know, we can get in on those guys early if we haven't already and point to results and go, you know, look at the numbers that, that Dungey put up while like basically like pulling a rabbit out of his ass half the time and hear the numbers that DeVito put up running the offense that we actually wanted to this whole time. So I, I, I think brighter days ahead for, for quarterback um, recruiting in general, but yeah, I think we're in also in a very tenuous spot right now. I don't want to undersell that. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's not what you want to rely on, but um, 
you know, we saw our own quarterbacks leave with uh, with Chance Amy. Um, the quarterback transfer market is crazier than it's ever been. And in the worst case scenario, I think we can find a rental um, if need be, if there are like, if DeVito was to leave early and we needed to plug someone in, um, I think it's, it's probably even easier to sell uh, a one or two year rental on playing for a, a guy like Babers who's had success, um, obviously getting guys in the next level earlier on, but then put just putting up, you know, monster numbers in college. So um, that is another wrinkle that we hopefully won't have to rely on too much. I don't think it's like great process, but we've also seen way bigger programs do it. So it's, it's not like, you know, something that's verboten. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, why don't we hear a little bit of word from our sponsor and move on to halftime. Dan, what have you been drinking? I know we, uh, we didn't speak too long ago, but what have you been drinking lately? Uh, it's mostly been Jersey stuff and mostly carton stuff. Um, I've had a lot of boat beer in and out of the shore house where I've been for like off and on for the last three weeks. Uh, and then uh, had some hot pun from them. Um, there are a couple of breweries in, in up in Point Pleasant now, which is near nearby that I want to hit. I was near one yet last night, but by the time we got out of dinner, it was closed. So I'd like to try to make my way up there if I can. Um, but it hasn't been a hugely diverse beer a few days uh, or less. It's been less than a week since we last spoke. Um, but hopefully by the end of this trip, I'll, I'll have had a, a bit more. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I decided to revisit that uh, gentle reminder, Pizza Port Modern Times collab that I'd mentioned. Also tried out uh, a Hoppy Sauvignon Blanc that uh, that's technically a beer, but really is a wine. Uh, it was super good. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it. Might have to get some more of that. My mind is blown. Yeah, I was I was very surprised. It wasn't all that expensive, uh, and it came in cans. So it was from uh, Crazy Legs, which I think is a little more hyper local. But yeah, super good. I uh, definitely enjoyed that. Had from Modern Times, uh, Fruitlands, uh, Rosé, uh, Goza that they had. It was okay. Not a big Rosé fan. I was just more curious about that one in particular. Uh, from Smog City, I had their uh, kind of mango IPA called Hop Tango. Also had a very good beer from them, uh, Tropical Farmhouse uh, Saison. That was super good, and I wish I'd actually grabbed some more of that. Uh, more to come this week with the fourth and everything. I had some other things in the fridge. Uh, might be hanging out with some friends, so I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll get some more. I'm happy to report that your Utah Jazz have just signed Jeff Green to a one-year deal. So yeah, start, start planning the the trip to Salt Lake for the parade now. I, I will be right back to, to head to Salt Lake. And <laughs> honestly, like I said, I, I think Salt Lake, it's not like the most fun city in the world, but, but it's a fun city uh, depending on like your goals. Uh, going to Utah Jazz games, the arena is actually pretty fun. Uh, the fact that the beer lines are like three people deep and the beer super cheap is great. Um, everybody's pretty friendly in the arena, at least when I was there. I know there were some issues this past season, but yeah, I, I, I heartily endorse the Jazz as your 2020 uh, NBA champion. You've heard it here first. <laughs> I just don't want to wide run the Lakers. Go to the Clippers, go to the, stay with the Raptors. I, I just, I, it's like we're looking, we're so close to having this really fun year where there's no inevitable team. Obviously, the inevitable team didn't win this year, but like, even entering the season without that mindset, I think would just be such a fun change for a couple of years. Not that I think super teams are the worst thing in the world. Obviously the NBA has thrived with them, but I just don't want to go to the Lakers. 
Yeah, I agree. I think Kawhi's fun. Lakers are hateable. Let's we'll just avoid him going into that situation. Yes, please. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the moment we've all been waiting for that we yet to mention here, the American Athletic Conference preview, Dan, including the beloved Tulane Green Wave. I thought you going to say the uh, beloved, but uh, not long for this world, UConn Huskies. I mean, beloved is a strong word about the UConn Huskies. Is this the final year for UConn? Like, they're, they're out after one year, it sounds like? It sounds like one, yes. I, I, I heard some things that it might have to be two, but or they might even want it to be two, but it's, it's going to be one. They're going to make it, they're going to make it count. They're going to see if they can lose every game. I was going to say, do we think UConn, we'll start at the bottom. Do we think UConn wins an AAC game this year? See who we got. UConn and AAC, um, really any of these teams could be in. Wagner could, could have fooled me. <laughs> Are they in the AAC? No. Right, moving on. Uh, they got at UCF. Uh, they got South Florida at Tulane, Houston. Those first four games, all losses. For sure. Uh, this is a tough schedule. Uh, Navy at Cincinnati. They got East Carolina and then at Temple. The only potential win in the AAC on this schedule is East Carolina. Yeah. And I'm not counting on ECU to be like awful forever. No. Like obviously the the uh, their last coach, the former Duke assistant whose name is slipping my mind. Uh, Montgomery. Yes. Uh, Stop Montgomery didn't work out at all. Um, he was really, really bad. Uh, even though he did beat, uh, didn't they store like a huge upset last year? They were like they did, they did horrendous. Down. They they did something ridiculous last year. They they just like last year they oh, they beat North Carolina by twenty two. That all right? So that might have been it. I don't remember. I, that might have also just felt ridiculous, and then like very quickly did not feel ridiculous. They beat UConn by thirty four. Again, I mean that's not that's not surprising. I thought they'd be one of the big AAC teams, but maybe I was thinking UNC. Yeah, it might have been UNC. I mean, two years ago, they might have done it. I feel like they, they could have done something stupid like that. But yeah, I, I think that starting from the bottom there, uh, yeah, ECU is not going to be terrible forever. They have great fan support. They have a ton of boosters in the local area in Greenville. Like, they have a chance to, to, to rise up here. And... I mean, I don't know what the hell they're going to do with this schedule because apparently I didn't realize this was the case when they uh, they deregulated the division the divisional structure and the conference championship structure. Is that if you want a conference championship game, either you have to play a full round robin or you need divisions. So they basically just amended the rule to fit the Big Twelve rather than just yeah. give them an exception. Right. Yes. Yeah. So so now the AAC either needs to um, have everyone fill a spot with probably a cross-division team that they can't count towards the standings. Or or they need to um, like schedule a second like FCS game. Yeah, not, neither of those seems uh, ideal. Um, obviously, we saw our own version of this when West Virginia left super early from the Big East, and we had to scramble and, and, and add Mizzou. Um, and we said, but- hey, you guys are paying, right? They're like, nah, we're good. <laughs> just got the hell out. I, I almost I respect how West Virginia handled that whole situation in the most West Virginia way possible. They 100%. were the last ones to get an invite somewhere and left first. <laughs> they, well, it's also like old because the the Big Twelve does that stupid thing that the Big Ten also does of like deferred like the SEC, Pac twelve, and, and ACC don't do this, but the Big Twelve and Big Ten do of like I where you don't get your full payouts. 
Yeah, yeah. they still don't have their full payouts. No, it's crazy. It's like the dumbest thing. It's it's like the most definitive way to treat your new schools like second class citizens. Paying your dues and like this is like pledging status, basically. Yeah. But making Rutgers do like awful jello shots in the basement while they're tied up. <laughs> Um, oh, 100%. Which, which is what Rutgers of all it's like in general, but you don't need to like add to it. Um, it's Yeah, I, I've never liked that. I always appreciated the ACC was like, no, you guys are in the ACC now because that's why we added you. Because yeah, we wanted you. <laughs> we wanted you. We didn't just want your TV market. Watch, we're going to find out the, like, that the, they've been fudging the numbers the whole time and like Nebraska, they gave full payouts immediately. That wouldn't surprise just, me at all. Yeah, Nebraska, they've just been, they've just been hazing Maryland directors. <laughs> Imagine, yeah, like, do you think if, if like, in the, the, the long-fabled um, acquisition of, like, Texas ever happened, or Notre Dame, do you think they would not give Notre Dame or Texas their full payout? No, they'd give them, like, double the first year. Right. <laughs> they just give them Maryland and Rutgers shares. <laughs> you learned this. They'd make Maryland and Rutgers pay for each of those schools individually. Sadly. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um... I know we said we talk about this. So, like before, we're out of the like expansion conversation. We said we talk about it when we were talking last week. Who do you think is the best ad, if any, here? Um, putting everything on the table, whether that's uh, basketball only or football only members, or um, or full members, because it seems like all of those things were originally bandied about before. It seems like they're going to progress without anybody for now, at least. Yeah, it's it's tough because. Um, like BYU, so apparently there was an article I saw in the Houston Chronicle a few days ago where it sounded like BYU and Army were getting the most thought, the most like attention as options. Um, BYU made the most sense, I think, as a full, uh, full fledged member because they have been good in basketball and could probably ramp up pretty quick to be competitive. They're not so far removed from the conference picture being at least kind of close to the Texas schools. Um, but if you're BYU, uh, you might not want to distance yourself from the uh, West Coast Conference where, where you house the rest of your stuff. And I think BYU might want to keep themselves available if the Big 12 rethinks their stuff again after uh, exploring expansion a couple years ago and not doing it. Army, it'd be cool to have the Army Navy. If you're ACC or the AAC, I think it'd be, it'd be cool for you to have the Army Navy game under your banner. But Army, I think, has to just be a football edition. Um, and that's never ideal. Obviously, they have that with Navy now. Um, but it's never like the best solution. And beyond them, um, I don't think there are like super obvious, uh, super obvious moves. Like is the AAC so much better than the mountain West that like you could go poach uh, a mid level or even like a a top ish mountain West school. I I don't know that. And I don't know that any of like the really good Sunbelt or conference USA schools are a super obvious addition either. Um, Just because like, even if they're uh, they're competitive enough in one sport, they're probably not across the board. Like App State, it's probably not going to give you much in basketball most years. And and I think if you're the AAC, you don't want to dilute like your total sports brand. Which while we all make fun of it a lot, like their sports have been pretty good. So um, I think BYU makes the most sense of what I can think of, but it's it's still not obvious that they would want it on their side either. Yeah, and excuse the garbage collection going on in the background while I'm talking here. Uh, I, I completely agree. I think for BYU, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, there's also the Sunday um, issue for them that I think further complicates any sort of membership beyond football. And Because really for them, I would think uh, you'd want to be an all-sports all member just because the uh, 
the financial advantages of being like they're one of the only ones that could really move the needle uh, in, in terms of you know providing the value required to to keep the ESPN contract um, in place where it is or potentially increase it. So I, I, I think for BYU, it's probably a non-starter. I think Army learned their lesson after being in Conference USA. Uh, they've largely been able to feel this rise into the national conversation just by way of uh, scheduling smart, which, surprise, like, it works. Look, look at Army's schedule year in and year out uh, lately, and you'll see um, two FCS games, a whole lot of trash. Uh, they'll definitely face UMass. Um, they'll, they'll really only have, like like, two marquee games on there, and everything else is, like, hanging out with the dregs of the Mountain West, American Athletic, uh, and Conference USA. So that, that's not to, to, to drag Army at all. I mean, yeah, I'll take that Lambert Trophy back. But it, it's more just to point out that, like, they did everything smart. You, you had a very – you had a struggling program that was, that was already screwed by way of just, like, the admission standards and what you're asking, you know, recruits to do following your football career – and so, yeah, w- why make it harder? So like in American Athletic Conference, where they were in an East division, like, okay, so you're going to pencil in four losses a year to UCF, Cincy, USF, and Temple. Like maybe you beat ECU. You're going to have to face two of the teams in the West that are all, like, save Navy, like better suited to win than you are. I think in general, like they made a good decision to stay out. For me, if they're going to add an all-sports member, and I think they should, uh, the only one that even stands out a little bit is Buffalo. Um, as a potential option to kind of get them back into the Northeast market and an athletic program that could succeed uh, across the board. Buffalo is definitely interesting because they've had a couple different spikes in football. They're doing quite well now um, with Leopold there. Um, Buff- uh, basketball obviously was a top 25-ish program this year. Um, the Buffalo's been, I don't think they've like nailed it in selling their like New York State thing, which obviously is rub Syracuse the wrong way a bit. I think they kind of bailed on it at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think they're happy being what they are. Like, they're a, they're a state school in New York. They're competitive. Um, they're from a, a pretty passionate sports city. Um, that's not a bad option, especially because they don't have a long history with the MAC, And they don't really fit the MAC. I think they fit it culturally enough. But it's not like they're this, like, long-term MAC school. They're not in Ohio. They're not in Michigan. Yeah, they fit it far less than every other school in the MAC. Yeah, and it's a big state school. Um Obviously, I think there'd be some growing pains there, especially because they've never hit, like, the Appalachian State level of success. Um, but that would be an interesting – I think I think you'd have to – the AC would have to, like, invest in them, you know, coming up a bit and, and be, be patient with them. But there would definitely be some uh, potential there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's a much better alternative than, like, banking on UAB, being able to, to fully figure it out across all sports. Um you know, like you're not looking, you're not really looking at a team like NTSU or Marshall. Um, ODU is, is the other name I've seen tossed around a little bit, and that's one that could potentially uh, figure that's it out. Good enough yet? Yeah, but like that's the thing. Like they're, they're not, they haven't shown, they haven't shown themselves able to create something like sustainable for more than a year or two across sports. And like to me, I don't know. That, that just seems like a deal breaker. It. Really, I thought this would be easier for them. Like when we were talking about this like years ago, when they said, okay, if anyone ever leaves the AAC, easy, you just go raid the CUSA. I think now like everything's changed so much because of how rights deals are working and how you know everyone's realizing that you don't just buy TV markets anymore. Like the, the, the games change considerably. And yet yeah, there isn't a clear addition here 
Um, I don't, and you, you can't just add one of the Florida schools, I guess, unless you wanted to add FIU and FAU, but I doubt USF and UCF would ever like sign on to that. No. And also like to their credit, the AC I think has taken a bigger leap forward from the rest of the group of five than we probably expected when we first discussed this. I think, I don't think they're like all that close to the power five, but um, I think there is a pretty like strong line of demarcation between the power five and then the AAC and the Mountain West and then the rest. Um, and that makes it tougher to add one of those schools because the schools that thrive in Conference USA and Sunbelt like may not necessarily thrive in the AAC. We've seen that with ECU already where like when they added ECU, I was like, oh, this is perfect. No brainer. ECU beats up on ACC teams like relatively often, but uh, it's shown that the, you know, you really have to walk a tightrope to keep one of those programs um, thriving where it is and a couple of bad hires and, and ECU was winning one or two games a year, just year, a couple of years after being like a, an every year bowl contender. Marshall's an interesting name though. Um, since they, they've, they've contended pretty well, they have a long football history and uh, basketball has been pretty good recently. So that's another one where it, it seems like they might be a decent option, but you still don't want to have the, I don't know if the budget's like, like, I think Marshall's budget is fairly like conservative. Yeah. And I just feel like you might need to spend a lot more to really compete. And that, I mean, that's really the big question for all these additions. Like, are you willing to spend more? And like, I think, I think the ones on the top of the list are the ones like Buffalo, like ODU that, yeah, you have spent more lately. And, and, and that means that you're, that you're, you're, you're willing to make that additional investment. I don't think Marshall has necessarily been like laying out more funds of late than they were before. No, I'm just thinking of like teams that are relatively big names. I think most like average college football fans are like, oh yeah, Marshall, they have obviously the, the devastating plane crash, but their recovery from that, they had Byron Leftwich being carried off the field. They have their rivalry with West Virginia. I think they bring a little more, like they wouldn't feel out of place, I don't think in the AAC, but it's a matter of like financially, like you said, if they would, um, be doing what's required to keep themselves competitive in that league, which is a big step forward. Oh yeah. And like, realistically, like I think, I mean, I don't know how extensive the ECU and Marshall rivalry was in conference USA, but I feel like that seems like something where there's some similar fan bases. There's a lot of, there's probably a lot more in common between those two than we think. And that could potentially be a fun like subplot, but yeah, I, I haven't really seen Marshall come up, and that's surprising. And I think again, it's because of that investment aspect. Yeah, I also think the AC is in a place where they can kind of figure it out as long as they need to. Like, I think adding no one is better than rushing and adding someone who's just not going to work out. Um, there's just not enough at stake where you need to rush into this. Right, and this is you know, I mean, every, everyone in this league for the most part remembers like it wasn't too long ago when the you know failed TCU experiment and the failed Boise State San Diego State experiment that we discussed last week. Like all, all the, the the scars are still real for 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 several of these programs. So yeah, I, I, I think slow and steady is the way to go. Um, but moving on a little bit past realignment to um, just the standings as we finish out the East. Dan, there's there's four teams that could potentially win the East. I think there's one in particular that's probably going to. Do you think uh, the Internet's loudest fan base, UCF, uh, manages to win the East once again? Or do you think they're finally due for a little bit of a stumble? Um, I just think it's tough to deny UCF at this point. They've just been so dominant over the last couple of years. And even last year where, you know, there was probably a little bit of a step back, it, it probably wasn't as big as we expected. 
um, even with that LSU loss in the bowl game, like they finally got outclassed, but it wasn't until after uh, dealing with like an all time bad injury to their, to Mackenzie Milton, their starting quarterback. Um, like even with that, like they could have easily slipped up and lost that USF game or, or uh, the conference championship and they still won them. So um, it's t- I think there are still some questions about uh, Josh Heupel who did well, like, really well as, as a first-year head coach, but we've seen guys take over really well-established programs and not uh, quite live up a couple years down the line once the, the shine of the previous administration has gone by. Um, I'm just not totally – like, USF just doesn't seem to have hit that next year under Charlie Strong. I think they've been a little disappointing. Obviously, Temple is going to be going through a reset with a, I'd say, kind of questionable coaching hire. Um, and Cincinnati, I think, wasn't just – just wasn't quite close enough yet. Although I think they're the the best position team to take over. Um, I think Luke Fickle's done a really nice job there, turning them around very quickly. So I'll go UCF, but Cincinnati wouldn't shock me. The other two competitive contenders would surprise me a bit. Yeah, I mean the big problem I think for the rest of the, the uh, AAC East in general is just how talented UCF is comparatively um, at the skill positions in particular. At just all these, I mean, at, on in the trenches at receiver, like there's just too many places where UCF is recruiting at like a, you know, better than Syracuse or at least equal to Syracuse uh, rate that like the other AAC schools can't necessarily compete with. Um, You know, Scott Frost really got something going very, very quickly um, because realistically the 0-12 season that he inherited wasn't, wasn't everything it looked like. Um, They still have access to a lot of talent. They still have access to a growing uh, number of boosters, the alumni, uh, club grows by the day. Obviously, it's a huge student body uh, that hasn't been tapped to the extent that they could be. Uh, Brandon Wimbush comes in this year, uh, transferring in from Notre Dame uh, to you know make up for the fact that Mackenzie Milton won't be available. There's there's just so much to like here again, and like there's parts of this schedule like the at, like really the biggest game in this conference is the October fourth game between UCF and Cincinnati. You know, in Cincy, I think. Whoever wins that game is probably the odds-on favorite um, to take, at the very least, uh, the American Athletics uh, Eastern Division, if not the entire league. Uh, UCF tests themselves a little bit with a – they have a home game against Stanford. They go up to Pitt as well. Um, I think they can win the Pitt game. What they do in the Stanford game, though, is probably going to be pretty telling. Uh, this is another team that could once again, like, find themselves, you know, one loss or, or no losses and, and compete for that uh, group of five slot in the access bowls. So – We'll see. I mean, I, I don't see the same UCF to the playoff conversation that we've seen in the last two years, but uh, this is still going to be a, a, a very good team. And and once again, you know, and, and until we see otherwise, it's going to be a team that is just going to be able to run rings around uh, the other teams in the conference in, in, in terms of talent. Yeah, uh, I, I think on paper, it's definitely where we're going. It's just a matter of if there are some second-year slip-ups uh, with enough time removed from the Stop Frost era that we start to see the seams. But last year, like, unless you really were betting on that team going undefeated again, uh, we really didn't see them. So, um, yeah, on paper, I feel pretty comfortable with them being involved here. The, the talent, like you said, to lead off is just um, just closer to the, to the, you know, I mean, I think you can probably say it's right around, like, the bottom third of the Power Five, plus good coaching, plus just underrated Florida players. It's... Uh, a pretty good combo. It's exactly what UCF is designed to be. And that's why they always end up getting involved in these power five talks when they come up. 
Oh, 100%. And yeah, like just to look at Cincinnati quick before we go to the Western Division. I know I've already been at this a while. Uh, <laughs> Cincinnati returns about 14 starters. Uh, like you said, Fickle's done a great job um, turning this into something. I, I think that he's probably headed elsewhere this year as long as he wins eight games. I just don't know where that elsewhere is. Yeah, kind of a bad beat uh, not like, having Ohio State close on him, um, although I'm not sure they were going to go defense after Urban Meyer, and I think Ryan Day obviously seems to be a pretty solid fit there. Um, but Fickle, he recruits really well. Um, I, I Was he involved with West Virginia? I think he was, right? I think he might have been mentioned, but admittedly, I felt like WVU moved pretty quick on uh, Neil Brown. Yeah, I mean, I think they lucked out on whatever was keeping other schools away from Neil Brown, um, having him still there. Um, Fickle, like, his his like biggest strength is his ability to recruit Ohio. He was at Ohio State for so long. Um, so it makes it kind of an interesting fit for other programs. Not that he couldn't succeed elsewhere, but you think you, like, you'd almost feel like you're waiting for, like, Mark Stoops to leave Kentucky or something like that, where he can really take advantage of that um, of that recruiting base. Because, like, Ohio is very fertile – but there aren't that many programs um, that can like really go in there and compete for, with Ohio State or like just below Ohio State. Um, so it's like I think it's like Big Ten or Kentucky or West Virginia or bust. Um, I think Fickle wouldn't be as well served at like a place that would heavily recruit Florida or like one of the other big areas. Not that he couldn't do like a decent job there, but if I'm him, Cincinnati's a good enough position, um, and it's also like one of those just sub power fives where you can get a decent amount of attention that you, I would almost hold off on like taking a job that's just not well suited for me. Right. Yeah. And like you look at the top 10 recruits that they had this past year, like most of them are Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, kind of that area you were saying, like realistically um, he'd be pretty well suited for either the Illinois job um, when when that potentially comes available or Kentucky, if uh, Stoops moves on, like I feel like he's probably on, on the radars of schools like that, but Looking over the West, um, I know, well, a lot of attention has been on UCF. Uh, I know Bill C. and the uh, RIP 130-team preview um, did focus on Memphis as potentially the class of this league. Uh, They bring back a ton of starters, about 15 starters or so back. Uh, Brady White's back at quarterback. Uh, You know, Mike Norvell's really turned this program um, into something even beyond, I think, what, what Justin Fuente did. Like, maybe not from a pure wins perspective, but I feel like, you know, w- w- when a school comes out of nowhere and starts fixing itself, it's the second coach in the door that really decides whether or not they're going to stay there. You saw that at Boise, you saw that at San Diego State. Um, we've seen that. And here's the garbage truck again, outside, destroying shit as we speak. Um, Memphis is turning into that now, too, as Norvell's really established them as – Despite the fact that Houston's spending a ton of money, that SMU spends a ton of money on on fixing their programs um, and, and making them into contenders, Memphis is the one that, uh, that that seemingly managed to come out on top more often than not lately. Yeah, it's funny because Memphis, like, it makes sense for Memphis to be a, a pretty consistently good group of five school. Like, their basketball program's great. Um, and has been through a, a number of, of different coaches, um, obviously, you know, some more than others, um, but it's been a factor for a long time. Um, it's in a big city. It's a pretty good brand in general, um, but people like it's going to be, it's going to be one of those things where I think people will start to forget how bad Memphis was for almost the entirety of their football program. And 
Uh, Fuente really turned them around, and Norvell, um, I think he's another guy where they've they've kind of lucked out on the fact that he hasn't made a quick jump yet. Um, but eventually, it's going to be kind of inevitable. But uh, once you, like you said, once you get that second coach, uh, that kind of proves the uh, uh, proves the, the the fact that it's not just like a one coach fluke. Um, you really start to have something, and Memphis has become like one of the more consistently fun programs in in all of college football. So it's uh, I, I support them staying. Uh, relevant here um it will be interesting to see if they can kind of get over this ucf hump because ucf's basically like victimized them for um like three or four years now where they just every time they sniff like beating them they just either get waxed or lose in some just devastating fashion and i can't imagine having that year over year um the way they have yeah i mean having that sort of like you know little brother complex at this point with like ucf like again memphis has done something pretty miraculous with how they built this program up and how they fixed things um now like in seeming like one of the most stable i mean other than ucf boise um and maybe a handful of others like memphis is one of the probably five to six most stable uh, g5 programs and yeah having ucf kind of smack you down every time you think you figured it out uh is frustrating and a like Ole Miss fans are at least a little annoyed that, you know, that, that once kind of gimme on the schedule with Memphis every year um, has kind of turned into a, a, a bit of a testy game uh, for sure. I mean, not every, every year, but uh, Ole Miss and Memphis do face each other pretty frequently. Um, Ole Miss has typically owned that series. Memphis has punched back a few times lately. Um, so Memphis could be a contender at the top. Uh, the other real contender at the top of, of, of the West, other than the obvious one that we'll get to in a sec, uh, Houston. Houston brings in Dana Holgerson. Everyone said when Major Appleway took over Houston uh, that he had a very short leash, unfortunately, um, and very unrealistic expectations. Uh, those unrealistic expectations were not met, um, obviously, after he you know lost four or five games a couple times. And yeah, Houston went and hired West Virginia's coach who West Virginia was looking for a reason to get rid of him. Uh, so it made a lot of sense. Houston's probably not going to win more than eight or nine games this year, though. At least I don't think so. Based on the schedule. Yeah, I, think I think there's talent there, but you have to give Holgerson uh, a year or two to really get his, his claws in there. Um, also, his so defense I mean, sucks. <laughs> and the defense is bad. Um, I think Memphis is a, a pretty strong favorite here. Um, the one thing I, I look forward to seeing how Holgerson, because obviously, like, he and West Virginia just seemed to have worn out their welcome. So this, it seems like every, it was a kind of a good thing for everybody, uh, how it played out, which is, you know, always nice to see. Um, working for Tillman Fertitta, uh, who is Houston's giant benefactor and also the new ish owner of the Houston Rockets, um, seems like it might not be the, uh, the most glamorous thing. Like, he seems like a bright guy as an owner. But he also seems like a real bear to work for, um, looking at what's going on with the Rockets. So, and Holgerson's obviously not like a, a you know tame personality. Um, so I'm very excited to see what that what that bears. I could see a like more volatile version of the Mike Gundy, T Boone Perkin, uh, Pickens experience that we have at Oklahoma State. Oh yeah, like Holgo's got his own issues too. So, <laughs> like you said, could, could be pretty explosive. Um, <laughs> If you have stock in Red Bull in specifically the Houston area, though, you're probably pretty happy. Yeah, go for that. Um, Houston, like I mentioned, I think the biggest thing is just going to be the schedule. Um, even even if they do perform better under Holgo, like you have at Oklahoma, Washington State game, uh, at NRG Stadium where the Texans play, 
Uh, you're at Tulane, you're at North Texas, you got Cincinnati on the schedule and UCF uh, on the road across division. You have Memphis at home and then you close at Navy. Like even a good team is going to get tripped up a couple times in there. Yeah, it's the, the, they definitely didn't have like the easiest draw in terms of the cross divisions. I think the West in general is a bit weaker than the East and has been for a couple of years, but um, Houston definitely has uh, some landmines in there for sure. Yeah, definitely unfortunate for them, but that could be to the benefit of the podcast favorite Tulane Green Wave. The Angry Wave have actually cashed in on the anger, the hype, uh, the, the, the the prestige that we have instilled on them, and they were a bowl team last year, and they won the Cure Bowl against uh, UL Lafayette, who I will not refer to as Louisiana, even with a gun to my head. Uh, <laughs> they went 7-6 and six overall. They won uh, five AAC games. Uh, things started promisingly. I know we were talking about it uh, week one last year when they uh, lost to Wake Forest in overtime. But yeah, they uh, they won a Navy game uh, by the skin of their teeth uh, to get themselves to a bowl. And I'm pretty... I, I would say I'm pretty optimistic uh, that this team wins six once again, um, even though... Willie Fritz has said that they might go a little bit away from some of the option principles that have gotten him and Tulane this far. Uh, we'll see how that works out with, you know, Justin McMillan, a quarterback. And at the same time, like, I think I see some of the reason why when you're turning over, you know, potentially four or five starters in the offensive line, uh, when you don't have much coming back at the receiver position, you're probably going to be relying on your defense a little bit more. Like, I could see why you might embrace a little bit of a different tact here, but nonetheless, I guess I'm kind of curious to see what happens if you end up, you know, not looking maybe the way you have at Tulane so far. Oh yeah. We just had a firework off. Um, fun sounds all around. Um, yeah. I and mean, we saw it even when he was uh, at a couple of his previous stops, like Fritz wasn't afraid to kind of change the, like year by year look of the team, but I would be surprised if we went too far away from the option just because that's really like the horse that got him here. Um, and doing that like on a year to year basis uh, in any major way is going to be pretty disruptive to the program, especially with how you have to recruit for that. Um, but it wouldn't shock to see like a bit more thrown. We've even seen that with like Georgia Tech under Paul Johnson. Like there were years where they threw probably like significantly more than they did other years, and it all is based on the, the talent they had around them. Um, the throwing years usually end in- <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, I think the most interesting thing is that, like, even with the offense and the the unique offense uh, being such like the headliner of this program, like with any option team, it was really the defense last year that was um, kind of the sticking point. They ranked sixty five and SMP plus, which is really solid for an AAC team, especially like kind of a middling one. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of keep that going forward. And then, you know, no matter what offense they run, if they can find like some ways to be efficient there. Uh, if the defense is going to keep them in games, then they're in, in pretty good shape. Um, but there was this is a very volatile team in general. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they jumped up to eight, and I wouldn't be all that surprised if they fell back to, like, four wins. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, like, while Justin McMillan, you know, was formerly at LSU, um, at the same time, like, there's a reason he's not at LSU anymore. Also, uh, LSU quarterbacks, not the not the greatest set of uh, talent <laughs> That's fair. LSU's LSU's best quarterbacks usually come from Purdue, um, as, as as history can attest to. Uh, 
Tulane in general has like been pretty interesting under Willie Fritz. I feel like they they haven't relied on Louisiana as much as recruiting grounds, and that's actually helped them out. They've been able to get in guys from Texas, from Florida, from Tennessee, Georgia, pretty much everywhere. Um, this year's schedule, uh, I think we're going to learn a lot in week one against FIU. Uh, at Auburn, if they can even stay within sniffing distance, I feel like this is definitely going to be a bowl team. But, oh, you know, I don't know how this team's going to turn out, but I think they're going to hang with Auburn just because every year Auburn has that game. That's fair. I remember the Jackson State game a few years ago when we thought they were going to lose. I feel like every year though Auburn has like one of their their like their their body bad games just is like infuriating for them. So this, I mean, who else would it be besides Tulane? That's fair, but same time if Tulane tests and or beats um, Gus Malzahn, like Dino's not even going to be on the sideline for Syracuse by the end of the season. <laughs> Dino's coaching the Iron Bowl. <laughs> yeah, Dino will be, be the coach by the Iron Bowl. So, oh, so, so, so for once, I'm going to have to root against Tulane. Um, but yeah, like you got obviously like the West Division schedule doesn't help. Uh, but you have at Army, at Memphis, at Navy, at Temple. Like those are all tough um, road games that they're going to have to play along with the Auburn. Like that could be five losses right off the bat. Um, you get the gift of Connecticut, obviously, but you also have to face UCF. You have to go at SMU and the Houston game at home. Like, even a better Tulane team could lose seven or eight. You're right. Yeah, it's just not a, it's not a very forgiving schedule. Um, I would like you have very much like Florida's FIU might almost be like you kind of need to win this to get eligibility, and that's not like a slam dunk at all. They're pretty decent. Um, but. Missouri State luckily splits those Auburn Houston games, but then Army's not going to be a, a walk in the park. And obviously, that's an Army team that'll be uh, very well aware of what they need to do against the option. Um, UConn probably comes at the perfect time, but then following that with Memphis and Navy, although Navy is, you know, very much to be seen what they are this year after some disappointing seasons. Um, it's just not an easy road at any point. Like, there's no like easy stretch here. Even like the, the lighter games are either immediately preceded by or followed by like just brutal ones. Yeah. I'm not a fan of this. I, I have a bone to pick with the AAC uh, schedulers now. Um, Why are they always so biased against the, <laughs> the anti green wave horde? Um, Dan, since we don't have really time for SMU Navy and Tulsa, other than to note that they exist. Um, who do you think wins this league? Um, assuming we're both picking between Memphis and UCF. I'm gonna go Memphis over UCF. I think they'll finally get over the over the uh, the weird hurdle that UCF's presented them um, in probably a classic like 30 35. Uh, I just think they'll be a little more experienced this year. I think Norvell will really want that one because he'll probably have his eye on whatever big job du jour uh, is out there. Um, and I just think UCF's like their reign is is going to end eventually. So I think I think both of them are, are set for big seasons, and I will take Memphis in the AAC title game. Yeah, I think it really just depends on like how many jobs Norvell's mentioned in. Like, like if if there's a bunch of jobs open and Norvell's like the top list of all of them, I could see that kind of like implode in the locker room from within, um, even if he's not taking interviews. He's been like one of those guys where there've been like whispers that he has like kind of a weird personality, or he right. like kind of like Neil. He might be the next Neil Brown where he gets a job like a year or two after he should have, um, and that might be a good thing for Memphis. But um, eventually, it's going to be inevitable. Um, so, and if they win the AC, it would be hard. It'd be hard not to see him getting one of the jobs unless just nothing opens up. Yeah, I agree with that. So I'll say, I'll say if there's already a lot of smoke around him leaving, I think that they lose against UCF. 
I think if there's only a mild amount of conversation around it, I think you see uh, Memphis finally uh, get the monkey off their back, so to speak. Yep, should be a fun one in what the league that we make fun of all the time, but is in reality very, very fun. Yeah, I always enjoy it. That's why I, I, I might watch the Yukon's on. Like, we have oh, yeah, no... it's even better now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now we don't really have any reason to dislike them. Like, we don't really care about Cincinnati or USF or anything. I mean, USF, admittedly. Although, I'll give credit to USF for, like, derailing the, like, Schaefer fixed the program train, like, early. And then, like, they didn't do anything to, like, put the dagger in. But but, but they did. They did derail, I think, the, like, free pass I was maybe willing to give some things. Yeah. I mean, we, they def- we definitely had our moments with them and couldn't beat them for a long time. But I don't think anything that happened in the Big East, like, made it so USF is, is like, program not grata forever. Um Versus no, like, if anything, the most memorable games were between the, between us and them were the ones we won. Yeah, like the thirteen to ten, like final Ryan Nassib drive. The uh, I think the one a couple years later was just like crazy. Um, definitely some interesting ones. And then the the Schaefer loss that you referenced was horrendous, <laughs> just really bad, and basically ended up setting everything in motion for Willie Taggart to get the Florida State job. So uh, it ended up handing Nino one of his first uh, first bid signature wins. So it all comes around. Thank you, stop. <laughs> too true um, <laughs> guess that's it from us i know we uh we once again went into like double overtime um again this is what happens when we don't have a limit we are uh, on dan about the nba for 20 minutes <laughs> christ dan anything else before we go no hope uh well hope everyone enjoys the fourth uh shout out to uh tiana who uh our syracuse women's uh star point guard who is obviously dealing with her unfortunate breast cancer diagnosis. We hope she gets well very soon. Um, I know she's been posting a lot of well wishes from everyone, so it's great to see the whole basketball community reaching out to her. Um, and then hopefully uh, our U.S. women take things home on Sunday. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, thoughts and prayers with Tiana. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, cancer touches everybody, and it's really tough to, to see somebody have to go through that, no matter what their age is, but especially um, as young as she is. Uh, so really hope that she, you know, is able to keep her spirits up and, and get through this. Um, for everybody else, have a happy, safe 4th of July. Hopefully you're listening to this on the way to whatever uh, place you're going to to celebrate. And uh, go Orange. Go Orange.